All right. It's a Wednesday, so I was kind of figuring that this wouldn't look too much different from my Old Testament history and lit class, just in terms of attendance. And I'm, I'm not too far off right now. So that's great. I actually feel very comfortable. This is where I am used to teaching. I am actually loving teaching in the uh, sanctuary. The only thing I wish is that we had tables. If we could have tables in here, this would be a great venue normally for uh, large classes. But anyway, that's, that's an aside. doesn't really apply to anything we're going to talk about today. So I have a confession for all of you. Uh, my confession is that I did not want to preach today. Um, Dr. Tennyson, thankfully, reminded me, hey, Dr. Lear, you're preaching next week. You're ready, right? And I was like, ugh. Um, like probably most of you, uh, this midterm was just, it felt like I was stuck in molasses, uh, just trying to go and trying to get forward and trying to just make it through and feeling discouraged and the thought of having to write a sermon that hopefully is in some ways instructive or maybe maybe even a little encouraging uh, was daunting especially considering the text that I have we actually are going I'm going to be talking to you about Ezekiel and Ezekiel is a nasty prophet he is a potty mouth he is a god uh, God and him kind of are, are um, almost physically abusive with each other. God makes him stand. He rips him up by his hair. And there's just, just a lot of really difficult things in the book of Ezekiel. So how do I do this when already I feel down? Well, I'm struggling, I'm struggling. And I remember actually a professor from back when I was an undergrad and one of the things he used to do was just tell a story. And sometimes just telling a story um, can just be enough. And so that is what I am going to do today. And to make sure that I'm telling the story correctly, I have created extensive notes. So please forgive me if I look down frequently. But I want to make sure that I'm using the right words to bring out the right aspects of the story that I need you to hook on to. All right. So are you all ready for a story? All right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God took the chaos of water and darkness, and I kind of need my hands. He divided it, and he created a place for his people on dry land. It was a garden, fertile, with never-ending wildlife. The presence of God touched earth, and humans communed with God. Unfortunately, the humans decided to forfeit the relationship that they had. They did not revere God. And they were seemingly banished from the presence of God. Or so the story seems. Until the very next story we read, we see that the sons of these first two human beings are communing with God. 
And God is speaking directly with at least one of their sons, Cain. Cain, the son of the first banished humans, because he did not love his brother, because he killed his brother, was banished from the presence of God. Or so it seems at first. But as we read the story, we realize that as God sends him away, God places his mark on his forehead to protect him from the consequences of his own rebellion. God's mark goes with him as he is sent away and he is protected. All right, fast forward with me in the story. Next part of the story, God has a people and he has forgotten them for 400 years. They are being oppressed and they cry out for rescue. God hears them and sends a messenger to lead them out. He prepares a road for them by dividing the waters, providing a way for them on dry land. He destroys their enemies in their wake, not by their own strength or cunning, but by his power. The Egyptians drown in chaos. God takes his people to a mountain and reveals that it is his desire for his presence to be in their midst. Just like in the garden. But his presence is terrifying. Smoke, the sound of trumpets, fire and thunder coming down on top of a mountain. It is so scary, and the people will not go near it. God's presence is holy, and therefore it is dangerous to anything that is not holy. The people must cleanse themselves and be cleansed for his presence to be able to be in their midst without them being destroyed. The people want God's presence to be in their midst. Moses pleads with God, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, what are we? We're nothing. Please go with us. And so the people agree to the conditions that God gives them. If you want my presence to be in your midst, you need to do this. You need to keep it clean. You need to remove these impurities. And you need to have these systems. The people agree so that they can have a relationship with God and so he will live in their midst. They build a temple for God's presence right in the middle of where they live. And in this tent that they build, the tent contains a room where only his presence and one other person can be. And inside this room is a throne a box throne. And this box throne is flanked by mysterious creatures 
named cherubs, cherubim, and they are made of gold. And the Bible tells us that their wings touch. I kind of need both hands here. Their wings touch across the lid. This throne box is a symbol of God's favor and presence in the midst of the people. It is carried by the priests into the land that God has promised them. It doesn't move on its own. We need the priests to carry it along for them. And God's presence is supposed to be over that box. All right, let's fast forward again. The people are finally in the land that God has promised them. And remember, in the land, God said, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, so that my presence can actually live in the midst of you. And they say, yes. But they're in the land and they fail. They fail to hold to their agreement. And it was predicted that they would. Yeah, you're going to fail. When you get into the land, all this agreement, you're going to fail. So in light of their failure, God raises up prophet after prophet after prophet to warn their people that their apostasy, their lack of following God would cost them their relationship and would separate them, surely, from the presence of God. They do not listen. Or at least, they don't listen for long. Suffering that they experience leads to repentance and lament for a short season. But without fail, the people return to their worship of everything but God and the oppression of their neighbor. The presence of God could not remain in the tainted land, in their rebellion and their abuse. They lose the fertility of the land. Once bountiful and prosperous, waters teeming with life, land overflowing with metaphorical milk and honey, all was lost to and crowded out by the pollution of their pride, their greed, and their selfishness. And God gave them up to their own desires with terrible consequences. The land spit them out. Probably don't use this microphone now, Dr. Tennyson. (laughs) The land spit them out. Unable to contain the uncleanliness of the people, God allowed first Israel to be removed and lost in the surrounding nations, and then Judah. The people of God, were they even this anymore? They were deported to Babylon. All was lost. They were cast out of the land, away from the promises of God, away from his holy presence. Justifiably so. 
all was lost. Or so they thought. On the banks of the river Kebar in Babylon sits Ezekiel. He is in the midst of the exiles outside the land of promise. The heavens are opened and he sees visions of God. And the Bible says, and God's hand was on him there. Where was he? Do you guys remember? I just said it. Where was he? Sorry, you're not used to answering in church, are you? He was in exile. He was in Babylon on the river Kevar. Where is God's presence supposed to be? In Jerusalem. But God's hand was on him there in Babylon. Ezekiel, sitting on the river, on the banks of the river Kevar, sees a storm cloud coming towards him, fire flashing, amber shining. In the midst of this cloud, terrifying, are four living beings. Later on, these four living beings are identified as cherubs or cherubim. They are not the fat little babies that you see in Renaissance paintings, little dimpled butts and whatever. This is not that. These four living beings are cherubim, each with four faces and four wings. And what's interesting is the Bible tells us that their wings touch. As fire flashes from these creatures, they move as they will. In fact, these creatures all have wheels. And they are wheels that can move in any direction. I kind of imagine, you know how, okay, I don't know. When I was a kid, when you had a rolling suitcase, it just had two wheels and you just kind of dragged it behind you. But nowadays, you have those really cool, you know, uh, uh, suitcases and you just hold the, and it can go in any direction with you. That's what these wheels were. Any direction that they wanted to go in, they could move. And on top of being able to move themselves, they could fly. So very mobile. Their wings made a terrible and awesome and terrifying noise. And above the creatures with the wheels is a blue expanse, like a blue platform. Blue like the sky. And on top of this blue sky platform that these creatures are holding up, on top of that is a throne. 
or something like a throne, at least, the Bible says. Ezekiel is very careful to not say anything is that. Everything is like something like, because talking about the presence of God is terrifying. And so you have to be really careful. But on top of this blue expanse is something like a throne. And on the throne was a likeness similar to the appearance of a human. It's not a human. It's something like the appearance of something, like, like, as, as. Don't say it is. It's like it. Because don't you dare speak very clearly about the presence of God. Because it is terrifying and it is holy. It was flashing fire and amber and was brilliant. It was shining. It was like a rainbow. Thus was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh, the presence of Yahweh. Ezekiel was rightly terrified, and like any good prophet, falls on his face. If you ever encounter the presence of God, the appropriate response is to fall on your face. Moses does it. Ezekiel does it. Uh, I believe Isaiah does it. If you are a prophet and you encounter the presence of God, you fall on your face. God makes Ezekiel his prophet, and not in a very nice way. God makes Ezekiel do terrible things. He makes him be tied up for over a year. He makes him eat food cooked over human poop. Okay, fine, not human poop. I'll let you eat it over cattle poop. But you got to eat the food, Ezekiel. Why? God makes Ezekiel do terrible things to show the people in Jerusalem that they are not safe. See, Ezekiel was part of a first deportation, the first wave, if you will, of Babylon coming in and taking out the people. It was horrible. But Jerusalem is still not safe. And God wants them to know that Babylon is coming again and that they should stop worshiping things besides God and stop abusing their neighbor. But God promises Ezekiel, they won't listen. Despite the horror that they have witnessed, despite the voice of the prophet, they will not listen and they will continue in their ways. Great ministry, right? Thanks, God. (laughs) The presence of God. So fast forward just a little bit, and Ezekiel has another vision. The Bible says that the presence of God grabs Ezekiel by the hair and transports him between heaven and earth in visions to Jerusalem. He arrives at the doorway that faces north of the temple of God, and it says the presence of God is there next to him at the gate. Ezekiel looks, and he sees the people who are left in Jerusalem, the people who were not deported in the first um, exile, 
they're standing in the temple or the temple area. And what he sees is disturbing. Some of the people are worshiping statues. Some are worshiping idols, all in God's temple area. Some, a group of women in particular, are worshiping Tammuz, the Babylonian god. That's not ironic. And some are worshiping the sun, all in the same temple area. And God sees it. It is detestable. It is vile. It is disturbing. And so God calls forth punishers. He calls them destroyers. I'm calling destroyers to go through the land and kill. Wipe them out. But what's interesting in the story, first, God calls forth a man dressed in linen. Probably, it looks like a scribe. And he's commissioned to go through and place a mark on the foreheads of the people who moan at the abominations that are being done. And they are not to be touched. Ezekiel cries out in horror at the destruction. Will those who are left in Jerusalem be totally destroyed? Will there be anything left? Everything who we are is centered around Jerusalem, is centered around the promise that God's presence is here and that we are his people. And now God is here and he is calling the destroyers to come. God answers him. The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is filled with blood guilt. The city is full of injustice. For they say Yahweh abandoned the land and Yahweh does not see what we do or who we are. And I, my eye will not take pity and I will not have compassion. Their way, the choices that they have made, the steps that they have taken, their choice to worship the Babylonian God, the consequences of this, God says, I will bring on their head. So the people, when they said that God abandoned the land and he does not see them, they were right and they were wrong. Because we do encounter God first in Babylon. So God had abandoned them in some senses. God was not in the temple. He was coming back. But they said, God does not see us, and that's not true. God was watching everything that they were doing. God was not turning an eye. It wasn't, 
oh, this is culturally acceptable, so we just got to do it. God abandoned them, but he was back and he could see them. The presence of God is back in Jerusalem to oversee the destruction of his land, of his land, the defilement of his temple by his destroyers. The corruption and the pollution was too much, and the land had to be cleansed. God commands the man in linen to take coals from the midst of the cherubim and to throw it on the city. Then we see the presence of God mount back onto his chariot at the threshold of the temple. The chariot creatures, the cherubim, who are living beings, Ezekiel saw in his first vision by the river Kebar. The presence of God leaves by the east gate and heads east in the direction of Babylon. As you can imagine, Ezekiel is devastated. Jerusalem is destroyed. is all lost. God answers Ezekiel's despair in chapter 11 with a message of hope for now and a message of hope for the future. First, he tells Ezekiel right now, God, right now, God will be a little sanctuary for the people who are in exile. The presence of God that Ezekiel sees has wheels and it flies. It can move with his people as, it, as he wants. So like the first humans, and like Cain, although they have been cast out, and this is devastating still, God will be a small sanctuary for them in the midst. God in his mercy. Those God has preserved have been marked for preservation and have been saved from retaliation. The second message of hope is that God promises that one day God will bring the exiles back to the land. He will pour out his spirit on them and give them new hearts so that they can live in the land and truly be God's people and he would be their God. Ezekiel is transported back to Babylon and he tells the exiles all that he has seen and heard. We're running out of time here, but fast forward with me one more time. All the destruction that Ezekiel saw would happen, happened. Babylon, God's tool, the destroyers, destroyed Jerusalem. And at the end of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is given one more visionary experience where he sees the building of a new temple sometime in the future. No mention of where this temple is is made and it's no temple that we have ever seen yet to this day. Ezekiel looks to the east gate, and where he saw the presence of God leaving, he sees the throne chariot with the cherubim and God's presence coming back, returning to the temple. And the presence of God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, this is now the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the Israelites to eternity. Ezekiel looks and from the front of the temple, 
this new temple that's being rebuilt sometime in the future, and from the threshold of this temple, a river starts to run. It grows deeper and deeper and further and further. It reaches all the way to the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because it's so full of minerals that nothing can live in it. It is dead. It is the opposite of life. It is the opposite of fertility. And this water comes from the temple, and it reaches the Dead Sea, and it says that the waters are healed. That which is dead, the chaotic waters of the Dead Sea are changed and healed. What is impossibly dead becomes alive. The wasteland becomes a garden. It says that trees start sprouting everywhere. The animals come back to this desert and dead place. Um, The water gets filled with fish teeming with plants, fruits, animals, and abundance. And then a place is made in this fertile land, in the healing of the chaotic waters for God's people. It is a city. And the name of that city is Yahweh is here. Yahweh, the presence of God, is here. Now, The beauty of telling a story is that we each may have different parts that we pay attention to. One aspect of a story might have significance in your life, while another part may resonate with another. I think that's part of why Jesus told stories so often. Also because we just like stories as people. I have told this story to highlight certain aspects of the presence of God. First, that from the beginning... God intended his presence to be in the midst of his people from the very beginning. And he never really leaves them. Second, that even when the people drove God away with their actions, they could not get rid of him completely. In their disgrace, in their punishment, God still chose to be with the people, even if it was in just a small way. He did not completely abandon Adam and Eve. He did not completely destroy Cain. He was a small sanctuary to his people while in exile. Indeed, his presence appeared to them in Babylon. Third, that God's presence is repelled when we do not love him with our whole heart and we do not love our neighbor as ourselves. Just like the ancient Israelites, we have American gods. Liberty, pursuit of wealth, the American dream, power, the pursuit of happiness. These are things that we worship. These are things for which we sacrifice all, including the welfare of our neighbor, who we are supposed to love. A favorite verse Pentecostals like to quote is, when two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. In my name means in God's reputation. Is God in our midst? It's not just saying like we three get together and say in Jesus' name. 
That's not what that means. Are we representing his reputation? Is God in our midst if we are not representing his name? And if God is not in our midst, of what worth is anything that we do? Moses would say nothing. Do we love God with our whole heart? Do we love our neighbor like ourselves? Can we worship the pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of wealth or power in God at the same time? Band, you can come up now. Lastly, and this is, this is one that oh, keeps on striking me. Lastly, God's presence is characterized by the fertility of the land. I watched this wonderful short documentary last year about how Ethiopian churches are surrounded by forests. They do this intentionally. You, their churches are supposed to be in the midst of forests to remind them of the Garden of Eden where the presence of God touched earth. And what's really interesting about that is these ancient churches have thus, because of this tradition, have preserved the pre-desert habitat of the country in just tiny little spots, in little rings around their churches. And now conservationists are noticing this and are working with the churches to expand their church forests to return the land to the pre-desert fertility. And I think this is just such a wonderful image. The presence of God from that comes forth abundance. I keep on looking at Dr. Tennyson. Sorry, Dr. Tennyson. Brings forth fertility. It's a beautiful thing. When God's presence is amongst us, all of creation that we are supposed to be caring for is renewed. This is something the prophets affirm again and again. When we sin, when we work in greed, when we do not love our neighbor, it's not just humanity that suffers. It's all of creation groaning. The animals and the plants, when God's presence is in our midst, creation is renewed. The animals and the plants no longer suffer from our greed and our defilement. There is abundance. What is dead and past hope, the desert, the wasteland, the polluted sky, and the ocean can be restored to abundance when God's presence is truly in our midst. And these are just a few things that we can learn from the story of Ezekiel and the presence of God. I pray that you will be blessed. Thank you.